Last time I visited Universal Studios in the 1990s, the special effects pavilion still folded out as its altarpiece, its communion of psychic alterations or alternations, an exhibition run-through mediated by dissection and lecture of Psycho's shower scene. The tour guide's lecture demonstration of the making of the scene, which included a diagrammatic display of the many camera angles used, underscored by counting the many pieces of film going into the brief scene, and showing in the slowdown that neither the act of murder nor a complete or completely nude body can be seen, abstracted in advance from the scene its constructed nature. The guide was following the demonstration Hitchcock had in mind for getting his scene past the censors and which he built into it. Following its dismantling, the guide then projected the scene as film. In the old days, the tourists would still gasp. But in the meantime, one could hear in the main the aspiration of admiration for a technical feat. Thus, the psycho effect passes through a concise history of gadget love as wooed and won from our proximity to the psycho. Following the walking tour of special effects, the visitors entered an amusement park train to tour actual outdoor sets used and seen in films. Alternating with the ancient history props outdoors, the ride passed through a series of internal showcases of filmmaking, which were all generic, group-formatted containers of horror pitched to the thrill factory and factory of amusement immunization. There was a ride through King Kong's disastrous walk through Manhattan, a sci-fi combat zone for the survival of the specious, and a stop at a BART subway station that came under earthquake attack, which meant you also faced drowning. The tour on training wheels encircling the special effects pavilion and its shower scene services thus followed out the stations of the crossing of the film medium with catastrophe preparedness. They were the external ganglia of a circuit the shower scene had traumatically interrupted and which were then restored to a new orbit from the traumatic impact of the scene of individual anonymous murder back to the big picture and group portrait of catastrophe preparedness. Passing through this phantasmagoria of faked or dissected and resurrected scenes, the visitors passed the test as group. Hitchcock began developing his signature thriller style while apprenticed to German cinema in the 1920s. German films were steeped in horror, doubling, serial and mass murder, phantom control. They faced one way as Haunted Screen, the title of Lotte Eisner's study, the other way as projection, forecast, and programming of the rise of National Socialism, the thesis of Siegfried Krakauer. To keep their remarks private, when daughter Pat was in earshot, Alfred would converse with his wife Alma in German. The German word shower is cognate with the English shower in the sense both words still share of rainstorm or rain shower. As the German word for horror, shower, too derives from the storm advisory, but no meaning of shower fits in the stall. Coming to movie-making via the horror cinema of German Expressionism, Hitchcock invited the double that linguistics refers to as false friend to enter the installation of a scene that became primal. The mascot killers in psycho-horror films are Germanic in provenance, either by the token of their own surnames, Myers, Vorhees, Krüger, or by the cargo they bear. Norman is the fictionalized delegate of Ed Gein, who was a close reader of sensationalized accounts of Ilse Koch. The good word had kept it all over there, but through Gein, it suddenly broke through in time and in place and time, a blot upon the very heartland of America. Marion Crane 
is one bird who's stuck in Phoenix, the city with the name of the mythic bird that rises up from its ashes. As in Hitchcock's The Birds, for example, not only mythic birds, but all of the above, do not so much arrive as always return. It is the trajectory on which ghosts book passage. The bird's eye that rises up in psycho out of the slashing of the titles is the camera's force of visibility and judgment. Now the all-seeing eye of God the Father, now the maternal eye of the early dyad before which the infant lies open to view without concealment. The eye swoops down on Marion's tryst. It swings low, sweet harlot. Superego tells her this is the last time. She wants respectability. She assures her lover, Sam Loomis, that just as he pays the other's debts, so she too pays by meeting him in sleazy hotel rooms during stolen lunch hours. Stealing, being secretive, even deceptive, not respectable, an antisocial trend seems set, which Marion, however, wants to bring to an end before yet another one of those hotels lets her know when her time is up. But she can't, apparently, escape the verdict of places rented by the hour or for the night. When free money is in reach, she completes the profile of delinquency. In the opening hotel room scene, she delivers the ultimatum to Sam, that their relationship must be respectable or not at all. She tells him that when they meet again, it will be in her home for a family meal with her sister, with the picture of her dead mother on the mantel looking on. Sam jokes about sending the sister to the movies and then turning the picture around against the wall for what will follow. But Marion's slip is showing when she says Sam turns around respectability into something disrespectful. That Marion mistakes respectability, the social relation that fronts for sexuality, for respectfulness, shows that the turn against the supervising picture has crossed her mind too. She issues the sentence that her attempt to marry and attain respectability slips upon the disrespectful substitution for the dead mother, which is basic as backfire. The mother's image and look, from which the infant could never hide, cannot be turned around. This early all-seeing eye or maternal superego is bound to return like a bird. In Marion's case, it lowers the doom like the camera POV that swooped down upon the postcoital scene. What weighs Marion down is the dead weight keeping her from being made an honest woman. Sam slaves away in his dead father's hardware store, a place of storage for tools of repair. In this underworld, he pays off his father's debts and the alimony owed his divorced wife, another incarnation of his failed relationship to his father, which Hitchcock's film added to Block's story. There is no mention in respect of his mother. Down the highway lives Norman Bates, no father, only a mother he loved to death and, ha and who now has him under her tomb. Marion is his fatherless kindred, also under an undead maternal demand, the demand for their respect and respectability. Norman has all his birds in a row when he compares the get-well death wishes of those who, like Marion, mean so well to the clucking of hens. Both parties to the turbulent exchange end up falling, it seems, on both feet. Marion realizes that her private island is, as Norman advised, a private trap, a fitting caption for the earlier scenes of Marion's entrapment in the eyes of the policeman and used car salesman. She thanks him. He, in turn, seems to have held up under the challenge of experiencing his ambivalence towards his mother. Although technically we don't know she's missing yet, Norman's eloquent conviction that mother could not survive his abandoning her is already a strong sign that he is serving out a melancholic sentence. That at the end of their exchange, Marion drops the pretense of false name and false hometown and admits the two bird names, Phoenix and Crane, includes Norman in her sense of therapeutic closure. After Norman, during check-in, uttered some platitude about not getting one's losses, not letting one's losses get one down, Marion signed in as coming from Los Angeles. 
But that doesn't wash, wash with Norma, who has her own economy of loss to protect against the losing that substitution introduces. In fact, you can watch the split in Norman at that very moment of seeming therapeutic closure and change. Whereas she signed in with an assumed name that's a souvenir of Sam, Marion, now that she's made up her mind to open her trap, simply reverses the deception for Norman to hear and see, not caring that he notices, indeed, no longer noticing that he's there. One can see the change, the changing of the guard coming over him, like, don't treat psycho like the furniture. The French film, Les Diaboliques, was precursor to the extent that Hitchcock assigned it to his psycho crew to view over and again to get the suspense right. In Les Diaboliques, the surprise twist is that the man murdered by girlfriend and estranged wife did not die. His demise was faked so that his apparent return from a premature grave would shock his wife to death and thus leave her fortune to the surviving couple. We watched then, at one inoculative remove, the effect of horror on one woman who stands in for us. Psycho removed the middleman, central to the internal plotting of thrillers, and aimed the impact of the horror, the psycho horror, directly at the audience, as though striking at and through the thin defensive screen. The shooting script directions for the shower scene read, the slashing, an impression of a knife slashing, as if tearing at the very screen, ripping the film. In Scream 2, as in Demons, the literal rending of the screen releases the film violence that then afflicts the audience, though at the remove of a staged self-reflexivity that can't get around being internal to the film. By its preparedness, its sojourn in the receiving area of the psycho effect, the audience's group could meet the breakthrough halfway. With Psycho in 1960, the moviegoer was all alone at the border of the death wish, stabbing and being stabbed along the dotted lines, filling in the blank. Cannibal killers appear driven by a hunger that leads them in part to destroy and in part to mummify. While a large portion of the leftovers gets body bagged and dumped, liquefied and flushed, the cannibal murderers also regularly keep pieces of the body around, not just in Tupperware for the late night snack, but also as relics to collect. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre refers to the Ed Gein case. The film opens with news of graveyard robbery and desecration in Texas. Grave robbing initially supported Ed Gein's production line, but then they say he started eating, and then he started murdering to complete his collection. There's one psycho-mediated Gein reference, but the fruit seller is upstairs now. Grandmother is mummified, and the grandfather is undead but hangs out with mummy. We're out of the mother and son bond of psycho murder and deep inside another dysfunctional setting, that of the family system. The van of kids taking the trip down memory lane to this encounter is also neither dyadic nor mass psychological. It is the family sizing of the group that emerged after World War II to wrap around the TV set for better viewing and which fits inside a van. In Night of the Living Dead, the in-group in front of the set was in the first place an outpost of mass culture. In the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the two parties to the encounter cannot be further reduced or extended. What the Texas Chainsaw Massacre realigns itself with in the more recent past is Night of the Living Dead. The open wounding at the end of Romero's film was that we were consumed and recycled as shit kickers going on zombies. In the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hooper gives relief first in making the shit kickers cannibal killers and the victims college kids who are coded as socially and politically progressive and second by letting one young woman escape. It is important that Sally, the survivor at the end of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is also a sister like Barbara and Night of the Living Dead, and that both their brothers reflect the draw of regression. 
What cuts out future work for the film is that while Sally escapes and survives, she ends up a basket case and the cannibal family disappears without a trace. The slaughter is not contained, only shunted to the side by the big truck that runs over one of the cannibals and gives Sally her chance to get away. However, the conclusion follows an arc of legibility that commenced with the doomed psycho whom we first encountered when he hitched a ride with the college kids early in the film. We don't know yet that he belongs to a family of cannibals, but we do recognize what we do recognize is that it was a mistake to give him a ride. Before he's thrown out of the van, he cuts the arm of Franklin, the boy in the wheelchair who, though heavy, is Sally's brother. Preliminary to this acting out, Franklin immediately struck up an understanding with the psycho. Through their initial exchange, we learn that both come from family lines assembled in the precincts of professional animal slaughter. Appreciation of the head cheese that Psycho extols stops with Franklin. The other group members gag on it. The grandfather of Sally and Franklin, we learn in the van, was a pro when it came to slaughtering animals. Before the family skipped the sticks, grandfather used the old method, death by sledgehammer. Now their uncle uses air guns. This is the sole reference to an intermediary generation. The hitchhiker is up in arms about this degenerative innovation. The old ways are the best, at least when it comes to meat. Sally and Franklin take their friends to the abandoned house. Sorry. <laughs> Sally and Franklin take their friends to the abandoned house of their grandparents. It happens to be right next door to the farm where the, hitch, uh, the psycho hitchhiker lives with his cannibal brothers, presided over by the grandfather. Grandparents and grandchildren often enjoy an edible, static, free, transparent bond of doubling. In the double absence of parental guidance, we encounter in the cannibal family a bond of regression that has split off psychic functioning until the three brothers each represent just one aspect of a psychic whole. They're a lot like the Three Stooges. The older brother, who doesn't like to do the murdering and is just a cook, but who chews out the other two nonstop, is just like Moe, the superego. The brother we first encountered as hitchhiker, who enjoys everything, even cutting into himself, represents, like Curly, the id. Leatherface, like Larry, is the ego, reduced in his case of prosthetic seeing or sawing to the activities of killing, eating, and collecting. Grave desecration <clears throat> can be seen as the bottom line of the urge to annihilate the other. It addresses the psychopathic core, the death wish of the mourning enterprise. To mourn the dead successfully, we must kill them, make them die a second time, and thus secure our, our succession. While some are wrecked by this success, others take the psychopath to lose losing. No doubt if there is a distinction to be made here, it is really the contrast turned up on one process we can identify in phases. That we mourn it all in excess of disposal was, Freud emphasized in Mourning and Melancholia, an enigma. Why is it painful, he asked? Is mourning more difficult than killing and eating people? In their therapeutic treatment of the Shawa scene, slasher and splatter movies began singling out one intended victim to be the delegate of the moviegoer's survival at the end of the projection. Beginning with the survival of Marriott's delegates, the therapeutic momentum of the horror scenario grows in the scope of hope. But since the psycho didn't stop or go, a continuum of ambiguous survival opened its chapter and worse in the course of the psycho effect. The slasher and splatter films began to enfold killers and victims alike as fitting in with the norm of adaptation to psychopathy, the environment of survival. Before Michael Myers began his slasher career at the start of Halloween, we joined him in flashing on and taking in the empty rooms of the house. But it was the survey of the hunter preparing to strike down his prey. Is Lori, like Sally in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, chained to what she saw, 
confined by Michael Myers' POV? No. There is a qualitative difference between the psycho's scanning of the vacant rooms and Laurie's revisiting the empty stations of her concluded struggle at the end of the movie. When Laurie tore off Michael Myers' mask, she established another POV inside the film that is external to and remains outside the murderously superimposed POV. She delivered herself and us from that destinal camera that in 1960 swooped down from the heavens over Phoenix to fix a focus on Marion Crane and which was already always slashing from the opening titles to the hotel's Venetian blinds. Michael Myers, like Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and like the masked killers who imitate them and scream, exhibits pet traits within the disarray of his compulsion to cut and kill. He shows the startle response that allows the animal to test and increase intelligence in the course of restarting from scratch to re-secure the environment as tested. He's curious about his quarry, unprepared to follow the evidence of the lapse into lifelessness he's brought about. That a corpse is left behind is the consequence he is only preparing to face. Michael Myers stops short of eating the dead, though he still inhabits the register of hunting at the border between animal and human, where the line is drawn that he's only beginning to cross toward mourning or unmourning. Laurie is not trapped inside the psycho's hunting and haunting preserve because she is constructed in proximity to the good object. The cinematic profiling of the psycho killer includes as much evidence of destroyed but preserved relations with animals as of absent mothers whose disconnection would be preserved in the cuts of murder. A good babysitter, like a pet, and Laurie is a teacher's pet, is not a substitute Lori performs an answering service in the neighborhood of missing mothers. What was in the beginning the experience of being answered doesn't last long except via internalization, which the experiences we have with pet animals, for instance, protect and deepen. Except for the opening season of merger, without which we would have perished, we find that our fellow humans, unlike our pets, tend not to wait or answer, but this too can be born thanks to the good object inside. The metabolism of horror film requires surprise dosages, now of hiding, now of showing it all, now of serial interminability, now of termination in time. Following the success of The Sixth Sense, therapeutic closure itself came to be targeted as laughable or even horrifying. This is where we put the ring on it. This film grabbed us just when and where we thought it was safe to see dead people, in other words, in the movie theater as therapy setting. The adults have tended to the unfinished business of the tormented girl, granted her proper burial, and so on. But when the mother, all upbeat about having done the right thing, tells her son, who is the counterpart to the boy in the sixth sense, about the good deed and dead, the boy is horrified. Don't you know that she won't stop, that she doesn't sleep, that her violence cannot be buried or let go? Now the mother knows, and now we too know, that the anger of this ghost is interminable and the psycho-violence contained in the ghost's video and phone call as death sentence in seven days' time can be circumvented only by passing it on before the deadline is reached. You must spread the viewing of contained violence, its death threat, to ever more potential victims or survivors and collaborators. It is the spell or curse of black magic as prescribed in the most ancient manuals of uh, necromancy that can best be kept off its mark by passing it on. In Jacques Tourneur's curse, curse of the Demon, the written spell wasn't simply activated when cast. First it was secretly deposited, whereupon it had to set its spell, during which time the person under its curse still had a second chance, theoretically, if he knew what happened and could find the spell to pass the piece of writing on to yet another address in the developing chain. In the ring, the ghost, in fact a demon, 
prefers the spreading scenario to the carrying out of the death sentence. Each viewer who dies of fright after seven days closes off a tributary of her influence. The demon rules through the violence we contain, survive, and pass on. Infernal violence is attached to push buttons of certainty, but pressed down in the service of control of the finite span of deferral. In the early 1980s, <clears throat> I adopted the film studies genre course on the horror film and immediately adapted it to a new focus on the slasher and splatter movies that were in the foreground of the media sense around at that time. I fixed the focus of the survey class on the psycho effect, my summary term for those metabolic interrelations, self-evident back then, between the new slasher movies of the 1980s and the shower scene in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, the traumatic origin of an identification that was being worked through. I rushed into the topical without yet realizing that it was the onset of allegorical reflection. In other words, I kept plugging away at the effect in the regularly offered course without noting changes in the sense around. While I kept working on the rip and tear line of the shower scene as remetabolization in countless slasher and splatter films, I discovered it was time to wake up out of my Rip Van Winkle slumber. Even before Gus Van Sant's remake, one of my students warned me that we were probably no longer in thrall to a reception of the shower scene as dramatic. Her proof was a newspaper clipping, largely the image of the announced psycho doll. The brief report on the latest creation by doll maker Madame Alexander, who, departing from classics like Cinderella and Scarlett O'Hara, was adding to her lineup Marion Crane as tower-clad doll in a shower with a silhouette of a killer lurking in the background. In the opening season of my investigation of the psycho effect, students would come up after my lecture and relate their own near misses with serial death. Coeds recalled almost entering the car of a famous killer, but then miraculously deciding to let it drive away. I also remember my own close call, the student who told me three weeks into the class that he loved slasher movies, but that he had to drop the class because he just didn't know what he would do if he heard another word from Freud, our sponsor. By the 1990s, however, the students no longer shared their near-death experiences, but contributed instead anecdotes on the side of fabulation and recovery, like the report that the actor who played Leatherface was running a Santa Barbara souvenir shop called something like Shells o' Barbara. <laughs> now that we are also over them, it's time to file my psycho lectures away as archival but yet allegorical. They file down the aisles of the most enigmatic construct of historical understanding and reflection, the recent past. Following Hitchcock's 1960 film, after a post-traumatic delay of three or eight years, until some point in the late 1980s or early 1990s, horror films were all about metabolizing, digesting, reversing, remaking the impact of the shower scene. Once it became clear that the wound of the psycho effect had come to be redressed, it could be readdressed in history. Thank you. Um, I think we can open it up to questions. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> um, my friends have been seeing this ride that Knott's Berry Farm has developed and was advertised on Facebook. It's, um, it, your, your empathetic position is inside and the same as hell. Mm -hmm. And it's really tasteless. And I don't come from a position of Freud, but I was really interested in um, The Walking Dead and capitalism. And, uh, and it seems like now that we've already accepted the fact that politically we're dead, you know, we're wandering the mall, eating sleep, can't we buy anymore. Um, it seems the only thing we can do now as a society is like rip together and like we 
for the one that's going to go crazy first next to us, right? And, and, and then how do we react and community to this? So, you know, I, these are the things that I was sorting through when I saw this ride. I thought, so we are, we're going there now. You know, like, we're going to accept the fact that we're going to go there now. But I just, I find that so amazing, and I really, really appreciate the work you're doing. I mean, you're coming from a very, um, a really great position in theory. Um, but I think a lot of us are, are taking on pop culture um, from a political perspective. And, you know, we're just sort of watching what's happening uh, to society and our sense of And I was just really thrilling to hear you talk about you know, this history and this images. It's so, it registers so true. And even when you falter with your theory where you don't read the future, because that's a difficult position to be in, um, correctly, you know, it's so exciting to be on the edge of pop culture and watch this happening because we're in this history that no one's been to before, you know, and we're going to have to work it out through art. There's no other way to do it. And it's so nice to have someone smart and speaking about this thing. And we did other people have other impressions about it. <laughs> Not related to that, but I'm just curious. Is Psycho uh, the instigation of the slasher film? I argue as much. Uh, it seemed obvious to me in the 80s. Um, film historiography <clears throat> likes to think of Halloween as the beginning of um, the slasher genre, subgenre. But I think that's wrong. I mean, if you just look at the kind of cathartic um, momentum following Halloween, you can tell that it's a turning point in a longer process. Um, if that's what you're referring to. Well, uh, slasher films became uh, dominant horror for a while. Right. And, uh, and I was trying to think, you know, because of Hitchcock going back to Ufa, if there was some precedent in German uh, silent cinema or early sound cinema, for example, in Ham, you know, it's a pederast. But, but there's nothing explicit. It's all in high, you know, cinematic. Right. And, but and Hitchcock seem, seems to progress from there up to a sort of blatant slash. Again, suggested, not shown so much, but by the rapid cutting. Right. To, and then the jumping off point is where you see, you know, splatter films. So. Right. Anyway, in the course of the book, I argue that that um, give and take, that showing and not showing of splatter is part of a, this process of dealing with the impact of the shower scene. I have no way, I don't want to say that the shower scene comes from nowhere, um, but um, if you look at the, the films, these um, uh, uh, slasher and splatter films, they seem to return again and again to the actual shower scene. Um, I mean, is it a refrain that belongs to a different kind of lexicon? I saw it as um, part of this attempt to repeat and um, reverse a traumatic identification. Um, so I don't want to suggest that one can't go further in, in Hitchcock's um, setting and development or the German films that he might have seen, of course. But most of the, um, um, the, most of the directors who succeeded in creating truly traumatic <laughs> horror um, were surprised by the success of their efforts. So I think that's part of what has to be taken into account, that something is released, that um, that a personal history can't quite catch up with. So, so much for um, uh, historicizing Psycho more um, completely within the uh, history or, bi or biography of Hitchcock. Yeah. What about the camp elements of that film? The what? I'm sorry? The, the camp and schlock elements of uh, Psycho. The, 
take William Castle's films. Uh, there are other elements, uh, developments in film that feed into that scene. We derive a lot from the Hitchcock's earlier visit to the German cinema industry. Mm -hmm. but there's also a lot to be learned from the uh, economic troubles he was having around that time and, and his need to actually do a different kind of thing uh, than he had done before. That's what makes me think, and I always myself had a, a kind of a camp response to that film. You still thought? I actually think I, I'm even old enough to sing the film when it first came It's so over the top that it's very difficult to actually put it, for me, in the same category as slasher movies. That does come much closer to um, what this lady was referring to over here, some sort of metaphor about the living dead. <coughs> Or if people are now talking about you know, the death of God, the death of man, now the death of this world. We've moved into that, mm -hmm. that era. <coughs> it's rather frightening. But um, I don't know, I think that there's William Castle, there must be other. You know, I, I include a great many uh, elements, sidebars in the book. Um, this book really isn't about Hitchcock or his film Psycho. It's, something, it's about something else, and it includes those moments in its um, genealogy. Uh, one place to um, to go to and end up <laughs> would be the Grand Guignol, for example, in Paris. I mean, that goes back to the late 19th yeah. century and ends exactly in 1961, <laughs> as though Psycho had... had um, Picked up where it left off. The closing down. It closed in 1961. Um, the Grand Guignol, <clears throat> for those of you not familiar with the institution, was this theater that specialized in showing um, gruesome sort of torture horror. Um, at the same time, introducing um, new um, torture effects coming out of our own medicalization and technologization skits on the telephone where the husband is on stage listening to his uh, wife and family being destroyed at the other end of the line or um, staging of surgical innovations <laughs> or especially blood transfusions. That was one of the more successful skits at the Paris Theater. Um, but um, cannibalism, the fear of madness, I mean, that was totally over the top. I mean, every extremity that you can imagine that comes up later in the course of these films was already staged in the, at the Grand Guignol. Wasn't there a tradition of people paying to be in an audience to watch operations in the, uh, I think, in the 18th century, early 19th century? Right. Uh, did you, did you address the, the question of the fly scene in the end of the film in I do briefly, yeah. I, I was recently staggered to realize in reading this, uh, this is a there's a lot of literature about uh, flies. And in fact, I think that the very word said in that film actually comes from an ancient text where it was referring to him like killing flies in a room. And uh, one of the attempts made some joke about he didn't even kill flies. One of the more brutal emperors. Uh, as bad as Nero, uh, perhaps, but. Um, my right my reading was that that's a strong sign that Norman's <clears throat> delusional system had reached a point of stabilization or consolidation I mean the mother takes over and assures him or everyone 
um, that no flies will be hurt. Of course, fly is a synonym for zipper. Right. <laughs> so, an overcome of, of the castration threat. Well, yeah. Professor Ripples, I just wanted to say that, the, that just so far, this is such a wonderful, clear lineage, and it seems less psychotic now than it was seven years ago from Devil the Devil Chronicles and from uh, the Nietzschean uh, sort of uh, initiation uh, that when I first uh, when I first was uh, blessed to uh, learn from you, Ron. I wanted to know, uh, just coming from the band the opera, from the from this birth, as Goethe describes, the band obsessive band culture with the uh, in, the, in the opera, the opera house, and out of the crypt and phantom as you start in the book, um, uh, to now where we are uh, in this surrounded, this techno census around like a hyper violence yet in an isolated two. What happens to the future of the werewolf? What happens to the future of the of these uh, of the of the uh, where where are we headed? You know, uh, in terms of this in, intense isolation and disassociation with the with the crypt and immediate uh, you know surrounding with this uh, with the shower as it were. Mm -hmm. That's a, a difficult question, but thank you for it, and it comes back to yours to some extent. Um, one thing that I tried to address in, at the start of this book <clears throat> is um, in the setting of vampirism. I consider changes that have beset vampirism since the start of the new millennium, uh, like in True Blood or um, Twilight, uh, which begins uh, right away with the um, the sexualization. I mean, the the vampires um, are capable of genital sexuality. Suddenly, the whole notion of their pre-edible fixation at the throat or wherever at some at some threshold was gone. And in the True Blood, um, all of that was reduced to a kind of hickey foreplay um, maneuver. Um, but anyway, if you look at True Blood, for example, you see that very quickly the normativization of um, the vampire in the course of the vampire's integration um, cannot stimulate the viewership or the readership for long, so that you have to extend the invitation to all um, fictional figures, and especially fantasy figures. I mean, it's, it's maenads and dragons <laughs> that enter upon the vampire. So this is a bigger um, um, problem or issue or whatever, but I'm going to address it briefly. It doesn't this part doesn't um, isn't addressed in the book? But it seems to me that f fantasy is the strongest B genre at the moment, and um, I think it's because <clears throat> the law of B genre is that they all have to mix it up now. Um, science fiction, fantasy, horror are all um, in it together. Um, and um, uh, um, their integration is becoming more and more expanded. And uh, wherever you mix with fantasy, fantasy dominates. Um, and then I thought one of the reasons why that must be is because um, if you think of the, the main um, competitor, as it were, or rival, science fiction, which is in most bookstores right next to fantasy. Um, science fiction was never able to predict the digital relation. It could predict just about everything else in the computer, largely based on the traumatic histories of World War II and its innovativeness. Um, rocket science, <clears throat> atomic physics, but that the digital relation also slumbered in the computer was something that science fiction never predicted. Whereas um, fantasy, because it is by its very name about our second nature as daydreamers, came very close to that. I mean, if you replace Tolkien's um, insistence that what makes fantasy cohere is that the, there is a fantasy, fantasy that is true, namely Christianity. 
you replace that with the digital relation, you understand, I think, you begin to understand why fantasy is so widespread. But what goes with that is that um, an excess of objects of identification is no longer the same problem for us. Call that flattening of affect, whatever. I don't want to um, be conclusive about that right now. But the fact is that the, this kind of onrush of objects of identification that we've observed since the late 1990s in swift succession um, would have been unbearable in the era when we would have had to imagine something like all those teenagers crowding into a phone booth until it fell apart. <laughs> now um, um, there is so much more capacity through the digital relation. Um, and again, I don't want to <clears throat> judge what our, um, the nature of our, our identification is with these many, many objects, exo exotic objects being offered up right now, but I think that's important to take into consideration, that the digital relation that really goes into effect in the, at some point in the 1990s really changes, um, I'll just call it the interface of identification itself. What's interesting mm. is um, a society searching for metaphor as the mm. vampire during the AIDS holocaust, mm -hmm. but this moment when Hitchcock taps into the societal unconscious and, and, and grasps something he doesn't even recognize. How, how, how is that magic sifted up? How do we elevate to that? Give us something. I mean, he didn't even know it was there. So how does that surface? You know, he doesn't even know it's there. How does he find it? Okay, so he could find it because there were still all those stress points of, of opposition and conflict between media. I mean, he was working on, uh, working on his TV show at the time of Psycho and made Psycho with his TV crew. And um, already in the 60s, it becomes a theme throughout the 70s and 80s, then it stops. Um, especially in horror films, you um, see this um, tension between the two media being um, allegorized or thematized over and over again. So I think one of the sources, um, whether accidentally or unconsciously on purpose or what, in his case, one of the sources would be his having um, combined um, the two media that were in conflict at, uh, at the time. Um, there's something slightly claustrophobic about the medium shots um, in the psycho film. Then there's that, also the tension between the unrealizability of the trans, um, even though we end with, as I argue, with the stabilized delusional system of his being, of Norman being the mother. Still, the trans is not visually convincing or perfectible. But of course, the voices, the soundtrack is is perfect. <laughs> that was sort of a, um, uh, what shall I say, an anticipation of, of what um, digitalization would be capable of. But already on the soundtrack, you could merge three um, people or, and genders to create the different stages of Norman's voice. And he didn't know. He didn't know what he. He was very, he was experimenting. Um, I don't know what he knew. <laughs> there's, there's a very good series called Black Mirror, which draws a direct connection between horror and connectivity. Mm -hmm. And most of the, each one is a kind of a separate episode. I think it's the third season that's just finished, which is available on Netflix uh, for download. But uh, each each episode revolves around issues of Connectivity, which from which the horror is developed. So I think you're absolutely right in the comments you made before. Uh, this is, uh, I think, horror is now drawing a lot from that, and no doubt could be explored in all sorts of areas. The Black Mirror is worth it. Okay, look into it. Question. Yeah. It's two part. One is: Is there a movie that you've seen in recent years? Um, that you think was a really successful horror film? Because I'm always looking for ones I 
I actually enjoy, which is rare. Um, and I think it's really hard to make a good one, but I'd love to hear what someone who's spent so much time on the subject thinks about newer releases. Mm -hmm. Part two? Part two is, um, I, I know you talk about Germany, uh, some in there, um, but is there a particular cultural mythology that interests you in the realm of horror? Like, like Japanese, Chinese horror, like some of the, some of the, um, some countries I feel like have very, I mean, very distinct um, horror tropes and, and, um, and traditions. Yeah, I won't be able to come up with good answers <clears throat> because for one thing I tend to wait five years before <laughs> I watch a new film. <laughs> so, um, but this is perhaps um, also uh, also refers to your second question. I am aware that um, Japanese and also Korean films have been very um, successful of late. I haven't seen all the films, but I hear about it. And I believe it. Um, but it seems to be that for reasons that I can't um, be responsible for right now, but it seems these film cultures are um, far more capable at fetishizing um, the impasse between um, the horrifying event and um, the need to mourn or make reparation or um, seek some, some other resolution. Um, I mean, if I think of, what did I see, that um, the Japanese film about um, the audition? Does that ring a bell? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that strikes me as very fetishistic. <laughs> and, um, you know, once we um, left the subgenre of splatter and, or especially slasher behind, um, psycho horror was largely um, produced since 2003 or whenever Saw began um, under the aegis of um, a kind of infernal horror of instruction or what have you. And those films, perhaps necessarily, no longer left any room for um, narratological uncertainty or formal ambiguity. Um, every flashback counts, everything's kind of a live feed. <laughs> Everything is um, sustained in the spirit of certainty. That's part of the horror. And that's a different mode than um, what I would seem to have detected in the East Asian variants, which I would then call fetishistic compared to this more infernal <laughs> approach. Uh, yeah, I like the audition. <laughs> William Friedkin's buzz is good. Uh -huh. Brings in the connectivity thing. This is a recent film, I take it? Uh, it's maybe six or seven oh, years. Okay, good. Ago. And uh, <laughs> paranoia, it, it, it takes place around a growing sense of paranoia. Also, Bontre's um, Antichrist. Right. Uh, any more questions? Can we have time for another? Oh, really many, many times. And, or, <laughs> why? <laughs> it's a good question because how often does one see the whole film? But, I have seen the whole film many times, not just because of the responsibility of this book or the class that led to the book, but um, no, I've been a victim of the psycho effect. <laughs> yeah. At the end of your lecture, or your reading, you said that the students kind of saw psycho as kind of coming to them, like the dealing with traumatization. I was just trying to understand what Right. They were the ones who brought, um, who um, woke me up, as it were, with various um, props and evidences. 
in what way? Well, the examples I gave were of um, this um, doll, for example, that was being um, marketed as another Scarlet O'Hara, complete with the shower scene. So, that it impacted? Yeah. Well, no, what I trace in the book, many, I trace many things in the book, but what interests me and allowed me finally to turn it into a book is that there is something interesting about this finite span of what I call film therapy. Um, for anyone interested in psychoanalysis, it's a great, it's great case material. Uh, you can track the onset of... Um, of a traumatic identification that's even supported by its um, by a kind of post-traumatic response. It's really, I would argue, as I do in the book, that it's not until um, um, Night of the Living Dead that you have a, a sustained attempt to treat the shower scene. So that's eight years later. Um, but then um, you follow various uh, stages. I, read a little bit from the um, reading of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that was also uh, an attempt like Night of the Living Dead to treat or reverse the psycho effect but both those films actually ended up um, creating new traumatic <laughs> um, followings and uh, um, problems that had to be mopped up within their own series as it were not until Halloween and um, um, Friday the 13th, do we have a kind of turning point where being in the theater, <clears throat> that's what um, Scream then stages on screen, but already back then, just going to the theater was to be in group therapy, watching Friday the 13th. Those were all the kids already get, saying out loud, no, don't do that, don't you know that then you have to die or whatever. <laughs> So what I'm trying to say is you have all the stages of a successful therapy. All of this is in quotes, of course, but still you have all of the, the phases and stages of a successful ther- therapy after the turning point, the catharsis, um, the denial in um, Nightmare on Elm Street, which drew its horror out of the inoculation itself, going deeper right at the border between um, um, sleeping or psychotic realities and um, waking realities to find um, a new forum for the horror. But if you pay attention to a very good film, a late film like um, Jason versus, um, or is it Freddy versus Jason? <laughs> um, you see that the <clears throat> the um, B filmmakers were well aware that Freddy had to rely on the earlier generation. Um, to come, he has to come later so that he can um, um, be the last call within the already stabilizing um, psycho effect in order to work his horror. And then, of course, in Scream, you have a, a rather stable situation vis-a-vis um, the psycho horror. And then it's gone. It's simply gone. Like, um, you know a real termination phase. <laughs> now, you know, psych, um, psychopathic violence is not gone, psycho horror is not gone, but the the secular subgenre, especially of slasher um, movies, would seem to be gone. <clears throat> yeah. Is there any ties to sort of end of film therapy with the official diagnosis of PTSD as a kind of official medical discourse and suddenly sort of tied to that shift there that you're tracking the end of the effect of Yeah, um, I hadn't thought about that. Um, in, my, in an earlier work, Nazi psychoanalysis, I was more attentive to shifts in the uh, etiology of war neurosis with regard to some of these diagnoses. Um, probably military concerns are more pressing finally and that's why um, I paid attention to to those pressures and thinking about the shifts in definition and diagnosis Um, 
I don't know. I'll have to think about that. But thank you. I think if we wrap it up now, so we have time for Lawrence to sign copies of the books you are going to buy. Um, okay. And yeah, let's give another hand to Lawrence for coming. Thank out. you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.